Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Goodham continues the Being Lutheran interviewing series, interviewing Jordan Cooper. Being Lutheran is sponsored by the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary. Whatever your vocation is, start here, go anywhere, grounded in God's Word. Welcome to the Being Lutheran podcast. I am Pastor Jason Goodham. Uh, Brett Bow is still on hiatus as he transitions to his new congregation up in Anoka on the north side of the Twin Cities. So we have back with us special guest, Dr. Jordan Cooper. Welcome back, Jordan. Thanks for having me back. Uh, really, really loved the last episode on Calvinism and Lutheran theology. Uh, man, that could be an entire podcast on its own, like just reviewing those things. Uh, yeah, did, there's a lot there. Yeah, there, there is a lot. We have 500 years of shared history uh, mm-hmm. to, to poke and prod, but we covered it in about a half an hour. So that's great. Um, we're going to switch gears on today's podcast, and we're going to talk about something uh, where you and I have a lot of overlap as well, and that is the role of theology in the life of a believer. Uh, you're a systematic theology yeah. guy. I'm a systematic theology guy. But but the difference is uh, my home for systematic theology is the catechism, and you mm-hmm. have a particular bent towards academic theology or what you call scholastic right. theology as a tradition. And, and so I would love for you today to give our listeners an introduction to what that is all about and then talk about its value for your average, ordinary, everyday layperson. I mean, I think academic theology has a lot of value in the academy, and there's a role there, but theology always has practical value. That's something I teach consistently. So I'd like you to kind of talk about how what you're doing can impact the daily life of a believer. Yeah, that's that sounds great. Um, so maybe we should start with defining what what I mean by scholastic theology, because that is a term that I often use, and and I know the term can be a bit uh, off putting to people for for a few reasons, probably. But um, when we're talking about scholastic theology, scholasticism identifies a particular school of theology in that develops in the late medieval period. And this form of theology is, it's not identified with one particular set of doctrines or even one particular philosophical school of thought or something like that. What it really is, is a way of presenting theology um, that uses a lot of philosophical terminology. It's very rigorous in its presentation, and it explains and thinks through many, many issues. Uh, including, at least in the medieval period, some questions and issues which we may look at and think, what in the world, why does this matter at all? Uh, And sometimes I still think that when I read some of those (laughs) medieval books. (laughs) Um, But what happened in, in the time period of the Reformation is Martin Luther was very critical of a lot of aspects of of scholastic theology um, because Luther saw that there was such an emphasis on reason, there was such an emphasis on the use of philosophy that sometimes those things crowded out like the Bible itself, like the biblical text. And sometimes that, that school of thought um, could get overly speculative in ways that were not particularly helpful or useful for the life of the believer and weren't really that practical. Now, 
what happened at the, you know, Luther himself was not a scholastic theologian. Luther was a preacher. Uh, Luther was a professor. He liked to, he was, he was really a commentator on scripture. I mean, a lot of what Luther did was, was lecture on books of the Bible, um, more on the old Testament actually than the new, which, which is often surprising to people. But that was really, you know, Luther's field was like, let's go back to the text. Let's look at scripture. And and Luther was very much a a practical theologian. Um, Even if you look at some of the medieval thinkers that, that most influenced Luther's thought, they were, they were mists uh, and mystics in the best sense of the word, because I know that term can often mean all sorts (laughs) of things too. Uh, But those who talked a lot about a life of the life of prayer and the practical life of the Christian and what that meant. And those who were focused on preaching to laity and, and a large emphasis on, um, living the Christian life, even outside of, you know, the monastic, uh, life. So that's really Luther's emphasis in his own, you know, influences in, in the development of his theology. Now, after Luther, um, what happens is some of the categories of that scholastic theology begin to get reintroduced into the Lutheran tradition. But when do that, this is, and this can be read kind of in a, I think, a wrong way. And the, the wrong way to read this is to say that they're kind of reverting back to the Middle Ages and they're getting rid of what Luther did and they're, they're kind of going back on the Reformation. No, but what they're doing is, is saying they're taking the very practical theology of Luther in the very biblical theology of Luther and saying, well, let's use now this, this newly developed theology, the, these shifts in theology that occurred in Luther's thought, and let's start reintroducing some of those older philosophical categories, and let's give this theology just as rigorous of a presentation as that older theology had in the Middle Ages. And so what you see in the development of this school of thought is a theology that's very academically rigorous, but it's also very practical. And it is also based on the text of scripture itself. So what you don't find in some of these figures is just speculation for speculation's sake. You know, these aren't people who are just saying, let's kind of sit in the academy and debate a bunch of pointless issues. Uh, and, And the famous example of the pointless issue and I don't think this was ever debated. It was kind of a joke, but they say, you know, they debated how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And, you know, they go back and forth yeah. about these things. Uh, and sometimes they really were that silly. There, there was a, a lengthy debate um, b- between plastics over uh, whether God would was more willing to hear or whether a prayer was more, you know, efficacious if it was one long prayer or if it was several short prayers, you know, they had it <laughs> and, and they went back and forth. Like there, there are some of these things where you're like, what, what are you doing? Like, why are you wasting your time with this, this silly kind of stuff? So that did happen. Uh, but I think the, the Lutheran is like, I'm calling them scholastics. And there's some debate about whether you can call them scholastics or not. Some just say Lutheran orthodoxy, some say scholasticism. Um, I'm fine with the term scholastic, but um, they are presenting a rigorous theology. They're, they're, they are academic. They are presenting defenses of what they believe philosophically they're def- they're they're giving defenses uh scripturally or exegetically going to the text and giving defenses but they're always doing it with a very practical aim because what you see is that law and gospel application throughout and anytime you approach a doctrine even the seemingly most like obscure why does this their kind of doctrines these theologians are always asking that question well how does this apply to the believer how does this apply as law? How does this apply as gospel? Um, so a great example of these kind of theologians would be Johann Gerhard. 
yeah. who is, he's kind of the chief of these theologians. He's the most important. And you have plenty of other great ones after him. Um, but if you read his, and now um, his volumes are being published, they're not cheap, but in his, his theological commonplaces is being published volume by volume. And in the, in the, the whole thing when it's together, I mean, it's going to take up a whole probably bookshelf in my library when it's done. It's 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 a huge set um, of, of volumes and very, very rigorous, but very scriptural and very practical as well. And I think there's, there's a reason why Gerhard, who is I think the best of the scholastic theologians in Lutheranism is also known just as much for being a devotional writer and, and one of the greatest, if not the greatest devotional writer in our tradition. So that the mind and heart are very much connected. There, there isn't, and we unfortunately have this idea of like, well, you're the mind and heart are these two different things. You have like reason up, up here and then you have, you know, the kind of emotions or affections down here and they're like totally different. Um, but he, he really integrates all of those as part part of a part of one whole Christian life. I really think, and, and I'm glad you brought up Gerhard. I'm a subscriber to Gerhard's works and uh, one, mm -hmm. you're right. It's not cheap. It's a very expensive <laughs> habit, but I firmly think if you read these theological commonplaces, Gerhard's devotional writing comes through quite strongly, even as yes. he's talking about these pretty heady subjects. And I wonder if it's not a product I, I'm really good at blaming American Christians for a lot of things, so I'll go with that. Oh, I do, I do the same. It's okay. <laughs> uh, in, in American Christianity, there's this sense that if you have to work for it in your mind, mm -hmm. that it robs you of the experience of Christianity. And, and yeah. we've kind of, as a culture, punted on that verse in the Bible, love, your, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. And right. for some reason, mental exercise, like training your brain has become something that is a sterile kind of unnecessary activity because it doesn't produce the kind of experience that our modern culture values. Yeah. And in some ways that's, it's not entirely the, the fault of the church in that way. It's really what happens in the era of, of the enlightenment. It, which is that that reason, specifically reason as exercised through through the sciences, um, is kind of pitted against emotion, and so that truth is to be found solely in kind of mental exercises through a rigorous use of the scientific method. This is what happens in in the rise of the Enlightenment, which, which is reaction against religion of all forms. Now, what what the church does in response is. A problem, right? Because what the church does in response is not say, actually, we are creatures that have, you know, mind and heart, and we can engage both. And if they're both engaged properly, uh, they are, <laughs> well, they are functioning in the way that God has created them to, because God is the ultimate goal or the ultimate end or, uh, or telos of both mind and heart. And Instead, what the church did was kind of retreated to the heart. And instead of facing the challenges intellectually that happened in the Enlightenment, a lot of Christians retreated to internal experience to say, well, I don't know, which is understandable because most people like they're not, they don't know what's going on in, in the, you know, most advanced scientific discoveries. Like most people that's disconnected from their lives if they're not in that field. So why would they know? So instead of challenging the philosophy or the science, it was much easier to say, well, how do I know Christianity is true? Because I feel that it's true, right? So we start 
pitting what, what we've done is kind of adopted what was a pitting of mind and heart against each other from the secular enlightenment. We brought that into the church. And so what, what happened was the church kind of retreated and said, okay, yeah, your secular world, you can have the whole mind thing, but we'll take the heart. <laughs> and, and I think that's what's created this, this kind of dichotomy that they're pit against each other, which we're just seeing the continual fallout of that today. So would we blame kind of as that, that American Christian response to the Enlightenment? I know the periods don't exactly overlap, but, but would we start pointing the, uh, the finger kind of at figures like Charles Finney or Wesley? Is that kind of what we're looking at? Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, those are definitely figures that would be to blame for this in a lot of ways. Uh, but of course, I don't want to totally throw those figures out either. I, I don't think Wesley especially is entirely anti-intellectual. I mean, Finney, yes. But um, <laughs> so I'd certainly place the blame. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a lot harsher toward Finney than, I'm than with I would you. be I'm with toward you. Wesley. Yeah. Because uh, I've, you know, I've read a bit of Wesley and some of it I love and some of it I shake my head and say, what in the world are you doing? Um, so my my view of Wesley is similar to my view of Jonathan Edwards uh, would be, you know, he's uh, very intellectual. He's brilliant philosophically. Uh, he, he's a genius, but also very much points people inward to their own religious experience in, in a lot of ways. So I, I don't know that I blame one particular figure. I think that what you get in Charles Finney in the second Great Awakening is kind of the culmination of a bunch of things that have already been happening in the past. That that's kind of the final break, maybe, <laughs> between the the mind and heart, and and that really becomes the American religious Christian experience, um, where these two things are very much pitted against each other. And true religion is to be found solely in personal conversion and what's going on in in the heart. Yeah, and, and we ought to be careful, too, because it's not like Lutherans don't have this in our history, too. Actually, if we get back oh, to... Oh, of course Ger we do. Yeah, if we get back to Gerhard, uh, you know, maybe a really good kind of dichotomy to create is both Gerhard and Philip Spainer are heirs yeah. of Johann Arndt. And, yes. and Gerhard goes the devotional route with the mind, and, and Spainer mm -hmm. goes almost completely to the heart, to the internal. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's some good stuff in Spainer. I'm highly critical of him most of the time, but certainly his <laughs> disciples ran with things that yeah. Arndt and Gerhard never intended to happen. Yeah, that, that's an unfortunate thing that happens uh, within Lutheran pietism. And uh, I, I tend not to blame Spainer so much as the lot of the following figures. And I think what Spainer does is he kind of overcorrects, right? Because there is this danger in, and you see this in any group of, you know, pastors or theologians that are just really into studying theology. It's like, sometimes you can get so caught up in the, like, let's debate the minutia of theology <laughs> when like the practical life just kind of goes to the wayside. Like this, this is just a temptation. It happens. And, and Spainer saw that happening in his day where you would have these preachers. And it's not any of like the great, theologians that we look at today. It's not like Gerhard was like this, but you, you would see some, and there are accounts of this, where, you know, a pastor would just kind of preach on the little distinctives of theology, and his sermons would just go on and on and on and on, and there's like no practical, any application to everyday life. And, and I think Spainer puts a, a right correction on that, which is why at first, uh, even um, Abraham Kolov, who's known as being like the most scholastic in some ways of the scholastics and really strict doctrinally, he he loves Spainer at first, 
because he's like, this is the right correction to what's going on. But then I think things start to shift too much in that direction of the heart where then you end up, things go further and further kind of with each each generation of the pietist movement. And, and eventually it, it kind of really goes off the rails. So I think, you know, we do have this within Lutheranism as well. Um, you certainly see the, the pitting of, of mind and heart against one another. Um, I, I would say, though, you know, I just want to bring up as we're talking about kind of the influences here, and I've already mentioned the Enlightenment, but something that that I've been working on currently is I'm writing a book on truth, goodness, and beauty. And I'm one of the things that I'm really focusing on is looking at classical philosophy and theology and how they see, and this goes back to Plato. So we're not even talking just Christians, right? This is just the way that people thought in the West. It certainly impacts Christians. Um, but when people like Plato or Aristotle looked at the questions of the mind or the intellect, ultimately they saw that the goal of the mind was to be aligned with the good, which resulted in moral action. So they wouldn't divorce truth, goodness, and beauty from each other. In other words, if it's true, like if my mind grasps onto it and I'm studying something that is true, that means that my heart should also be aligned with that which is true. So it will change, it will change my heart. I will see that which is true as something desirable and beautiful, and it will change my actions. And these things were not divorced from one another. And that's how a lot of the early Christians approached this as well, especially someone like, like St. Augustine. So what happens is in the development of modern philosophy, the philosophy changes from a discipline where you are asking a lot of questions that have this overall goal of the person having a well-formed life. And now you get a shift with someone like Rene Descartes, um, you know, who's just after the Reformation. And Descartes starts asking questions like, well, how do I know that anything exists? Uh, and, you know, how I know that there's a real external world? How do I know that I'm not being manipulated by an evil genie that's making me see the world around me that doesn't really exist? And, and this is where what you get is like people looking at a discipline like philosophy and saying like, what the heck is the point of it? I mean, that discipline's ridiculous. You're just asking a bunch of, of insane questions that are totally irrelevant, which is kind of true. But, but, that's, but, but that's not the way it used to be. And so I think that's affected theology too, as, as we've divorced the intellect or the mind from the affections and we've divorced it from ethical action as well. When in reality, you know, loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, strength, like all of these are unified whole, right? We have a desire for God. We, we see God with our, uh, we, we study God with our minds. All of this has the same goal. We're looking toward the same end that is God himself. So it, we've just kind of grabbed onto some of these false ideas, I think, that, that grew out of the, the Enlightenment period. Great. Uh, let's bounce back then to thinking about scholastic theology, thinking about yeah. uh, the, the academic function of theology. Uh, let's create a hypothetical listener here who sure. might recognize that their Christian understanding is perhaps overly experiential. Uh, yes. What advice would you give to someone who wants to kind of be better read down this track of Lutheran history and church history. And in that advice, what can they expect to find? What benefits can they expect to reap for that self-study? Yeah, sure. So 
you know, we, of course, we are called to love God with the heart, right? There is an emotional component or a component of, of I, I'd rather say affections than emotions because emotions yeah. are kind of all over the place. So, um, and, you know, it's, it's more than just like kind of an emotional, you know, back and forth, because that always happens in life. If affections are something I think deeper than that um, and more stable than that. Um, so when we're speaking about to then, you know, developing a life of the mind as a Christian and, and what does that mean? Uh, I'll say that, first of all, it doesn't mean, that you just have to learn a lot of fancy Latin terms. You know, I feel like this is what people think. They, they think of the like, because it's true when we're talking theology academically, we throw around these Latin phrases all the time. And, uh, and it's true that probably some of that is just pretense and we want to make ourselves appear smarter. And, and <laughs> I mean, it's, it's true. Like this is human nature, right? Like Latin sounds fancy and we like it because it sounds fancy and makes us feel smart. Um, uh, and you can deny that as a theologian, but come on. That, that's No, that's totally, I mean, um, it sounds way better if I say incurvatus and say, than yes. I say that we're internally focused. Way better. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, so it's not about, you know, knowing the terms. Like that, that's not, that's not the point. Um, but I would say it, first of all, kind of may, maybe I should start with like, where do you go? Right? What's a good, where you start? Maybe just give you some practical um, advice. I wouldn't start with, you know, these giant, I have the Gerhard volumes on my, I guess you can't see because you don't have a camera here, but I have these giant Gerhard volumes um, sitting on my desk right now on justification by faith and on the law. And these are like giant things. Um, I would recommend starting, you know, with something massive or, or like probably really difficult. And especially because a lot of what he's going into is like debates with the Roman Catholic church and trying to discern, you know, very particular things. And that may not be like what you need because you're not really looking for that. You're maybe just looking for like, I want to get a little more into scripture, right? I want to look a little more into our history and I want to look more into scripture and understanding some of the things that are going on in scripture. Um, I, I mean, I recommend uh, two authors to start with, and these are going to be older books. Um, but the first is George Henry Gerberding. I, I think oh, that Gerberding yeah. is his book, The Way of Salvation in the Lutheran Church. I mean, it is such a fantastic introduction to theology from a Lutheran approach. And why it's so helpful is because, first of all, he's steeped in that classical Lutheran theology. Like it's that it's the same theology you'll get in a Gerhard, but it's going to be accessible and very practical. And what he's doing is dealing with the um, in that book, the revivalism of people like a Charles Finney and asking how is it that the, the Lutheran experience and Lutheran doctrine differs in the practical Christian life from that. So extremely practical, really wonderful. And I think you, you'll see the practical implications of that pretty quickly once you read through that. Um, and the second is, is the writing of Henry Eister Jacobs, um, who, asked, you know, his writing is, is so, it, it's so steeped in what we call scholasticism, but it's so readable and practical at the same time. Um, so his book is Summary of the Christian Faith. I just recommend it to everybody. I think it's a, it's a wonderful treatment and it deals with all of the issues, uh, basic issues of theology. It's kind of like taking, you know, your catechism and then just kind of getting a little more in depth really is what you're doing there. And the great thing about Jacobs is that the way he formulates his systematic theology is that it is basically a catechism. You know, it's questions and answers. Uh, and it's so it's kind of that catechism format that you may be used to, and he asks more specific questions. So, what does that mean practically when you start studying, you know, theology? I mean, it will give you knowledge, um, and the, you know, I will say that scripturally, you know, Paul, for example, prays 
often for churches that when he's writing his epistles, that they will grow in knowledge, like growing in knowledge is Christian growth. So Christian growth is not just like, oh, I feel things or, you know, I'm more morally, I can say that I'm doing good or something. I feel like that's how people view the Christian life often, maybe more outside of Lutheran circles in terms of the morality thing. Maybe we can, maybe we can <laughs> criticize the Wesleyans there, but um, yeah, <laughs> but, but no, I mean, Paul, Paul's talking about like the whole person has to be engaged in faith and any praise that you grow in knowledge, because as you know, more theology, you know, more about Christ and you know more about the God who has redeemed you. I mean, isn't this part of growth in, in anything in your life? I mean, as you're, you know, as, as you're married for a long time, don't you get to know your spouse better? I mean, I hope, I hope you do like that's part of a good marriage. Right. So we, we should get to know God better. We should get to know who he is. And he has like given us a place to go to know him better, which is the word of God, like his word in any good practical theology is really going to be based on scripture, right? It's going to be scripturally based. It's going to give us the theology of scripture. Um, it's going to be derived from scripture, but at the same time, it's also going to aid in your reading of scripture because as you read some of this, this theology and you ask certain questions and you look through what people in the past have said, and you will go back to scripture and you will start seeing things that you've never seen before. And you will start putting all of the pieces together instead of just seeing scripture as kind of a disjointed or disconnected thing, maybe you'll start seeing like themes and ideas that all connect. And, and so you'll grow in your understanding of God's word as you grow in your understanding of, of theology. Um, and, and even when you're talking about the practical life, how you live out your life day to day, um, when you start to understand your theology, you have more motives to live in certain ways. You have more motives. You have more ways to think about what you're doing during the day and why, you know, your vocation matters uh, or why going to church matters or what's going on during the worship service when you're there. Like all of these pieces will just, will just fit together. So it, it really is an essential part of the Christian life. It doesn't mean that everyone has to be, you know, an academic theologian by any means, but it is the call of every Christian to grow in their knowledge of God. Yeah. And, one of the things that I've talked about from the catechism perspective, and I think it absolutely applies here, um, with the curriculum that I wrote for my adult Sunday school class here at Faith, that is the basis for the material on the podcast, one of the very first lines I, I taught is that heretics write the theology of the church. And what that means is that we don't have a reason to clarify what we believe until someone screws it up. And then we need to know yes, exactly what we believe, right? And mm -hmm. what that means is that all of doctrine is a matter of helping you along with your assurance of salvation. Because yes. error is going to rob you of assurance. Right. And so, you know, even if something sounds academic, if it's from scripture, it's going to impact you positively in that way. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, you know, that's a really good point in terms of, of how God uses heresy in the history of the church, because heresy, you know, you may ask, like, why does God even allow so much heresy in the church? You just, just wipe these people out. <laughs> What's with all the false teaching? But that is something that it, it's used to refine the church. Yep. Um, you see, for example, that if you read the church fathers before Arius, who, you know, Arius being the the cause of the Nicene Creed, uh, because Arius taught that the son was created and less than the father. Well, Theologians were not as careful about the relationship between the Son and the Father and the Godhead before Arius came. 
And then they had to all of a sudden start thinking, well, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right. How is it that we should talk about the son's relationship to the father? And so that's what the Nicene Creed developed. Uh, you see this in, um, for example, the time with the Pelagian controversy with St. Augustine, um, the relationship between uh, our own wills and our own effort and God's grace. All of that, if you read the church fathers before that point, it can be a little confusing and and, and it's not all that clear, but all of a sudden, your own will, um, all of a sudden, uh, Augustine, who was the most important theologian of his time, says, eh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> and then he's like, let's rethink this. And then he formulates in his anti-Pelagian writings this idea that it is a grace alone that, that initiates our salvation. It's, it's not anything that we do at all. Um, we are spiritually like dead apart from apart from grace. And then you see this again at the Reformation. And these are only a few examples. But, you know, at the Reformation, it's if the church hadn't fallen into the kind of weird legalism that it did, the doctrine of justification would never have become a point of debate. And it was only because the church fell into such works righteousness that now the question of justification really becomes the center and we figure that out. So throughout the history of the church, it is, it is those heresies that do help us formulate our theology. And as that theology in the church is formulated, it is ultimately done, as you said, for those practical purposes of things like assurance of salvation. I mean, um, that was really the key point when, for example, um, in the early church, there were debates surrounding what it means that Jesus was was a human. There were questions about things like, well, was Jesus like partially human? Did he have just a human body, but no human soul? Um, when the incarnation happened, was it that there was this kind of mixture of divine and human? So this third thing was created. Did the human nature kind of disappear because the divine nature is so infinite that it kind of stopped, the human nature stopped existing? Um, it, it all maybe sounds like, oh, so like kind of theoretical. And what, what relevance does all of this have? Talking about natures and, and all of this stuff. Um, but, but the argument that theologians put forward was a very practical one, which was, well, in order for Jesus the son to redeem us, he has to have all, he has to have taken upon himself all that is ours. Because if, if there is anything about the humanity of Jesus that's missing, that means that part of us is not redeemed, right? If Jesus doesn't have a human soul, our human soul is not redeemed. So it does come down to that assurance of salvation that, that in our right theology, we understand what Christ did for us and that it is short and, and perfect, and, it, and it's been accomplished for us. So it, it's extremely practical. Well, and, and I think one of the great things about this aspect of what we're talking about is that this isn't something that we saw develop 500 years ago or 1,500 years ago. What we're talking about is going on in real time right now, the, the debates about inerrancy yeah. and the inspiration of Scripture. Right. You know, one of the most disingenuous criticisms or arguments from the Book of Concord is that it doesn't take up the, the topic of inerrancy. And so, you know, the more liberal wing of the Lutheran church says, well, we don't need to worry about inerrancy. Well, it's because it wasn't an issue 500 years ago like it is today. Mm -hmm. And there's been a lot of great work done on the doctrine of the word right. because of, you know, the questioning of the authority and the inerrancy of scripture. And at the same time, uh, on the other kind of side of things, we're seeing a lot more work being done on the nature of spiritual gifts because of what denominations like the Charismatics and the Assemblies of God are doing right. with speaking in tongues, right? 
And, and so it's yeah, always yeah. a blessing to know what you believe and why you believe it. We'll, we'll give Mike Horton credit in this episode since we kind of went after him last week. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, it's, I always chafe at this kind of undercurrent in modern Christianity that academic is a bad thing, first of all, but yes. that theology is irrelevant to who I am as a Christian. And, and mm-hmm. it's immensely relevant to who you are as a Christian. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, uh, it absolutely is. And, and yeah, I think you point out some of the important issues today. I mean, I think within the last hundred years, it, it's that issue of the authority of scripture that, that really is the definitive issue that the church has had to, to take a stand on. And if you want to see a practical issue, what's more practical than that? Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, if you pick up your Bible and read it, the question is, is this inspired or is it maybe not, right? Is what it's saying true or is it maybe not true? I mean, th- that is the most practical question that that you have as a Christian. So that's that's really, really essential. Um, so I think that that debate that, that we have had uh, definitely shows the, the importance of theology uh, and the importance of these debates. And, and today, I think we're going to well, right now, the church is working out things related to gender and sexuality that uh, we haven't previously spent, well, much time on because there were issues that were just kind of taken for granted in, in the Western world that now all of a sudden are being questioned. Um, but what that does do, it forces you back to the word and it forces you to think back and say, okay, how can we articulate this in a way that is actually very faithful to the, to the word? Um, and yeah, so you think about the, the of scripture, yeah, everybody in the church thought, of course, scripture is without error. I mean, that's the whole point of God giving us this book in the first place. Like, the, you know, go back to read, you know, Justin Martyr, he has statements speaking of scripture without error, which could also be translated as inerrant. You know, it's, it's not like this is some new thing. Um, but that was a given because, of course, if this is, if God is, has given us his word, of course, it would be like without error. I mean, what, what kind of God would give us a Bible that has errors all over the place? Um, but it's only when that idea is challenged that we then have to have to refine things. So I think we're 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 continually in the process, and the church will always be in the, that process um, because the church always has to deal with teachings from the outside world or false teachings from within the church, and and it, it refines the church. Great. Well, that'll do it for our interview session. Again, thank you very much, Jordan, for joining the podcast. Uh, Again, justincenter.com is the publication website, correct? It's um, it's it's dot org actually. So <laughs> I'm a dot com guy, so justincenter.org. Yeah, uh, yeah dot org. And yes. your your YouTube channel is Justin Center? Um the YouTube channel is actually under my name. Okay. It's Jordan B. Cooper. Jordan B. Um, Cooper. I'm I, terrible at this right now. Uh it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, it would make more sense if it was under Justin Sinner. I started it under my name a long time oh. ago. So, <laughs> so you, yeah, you, that's, that's you can is. find Jordan on YouTube. You can find Justin Sinner publications and even uh, Justin Sinner publications. The book you recommended uh, by Henry Eister Jacobs is one of the ones that you guys have uh, published and made available. Yes. We have published that as well as the Gerberding volume that I right. mentioned. And um, our edition of that Gerberding book, um, we, I, I'm totally like modernized the language and updated all the scripture references to ESV so that it's um, pretty usable for, uh, as usable as possible for, for a modern reader. 
Well, highly encourage everyone to check out uh, Jordan and Justin Center's material. And again, Jordan, thanks for being on Being Lutheran. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com. Also invite a friend to check us out on Spotify and iTunes. For the latest from the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota, visit flbc.edu. God bless you and have a great week.